Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was grief stricken. I felt like I had made the thing I was most proud of in the world and nobody, I couldn't do anything about it. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. I'm so excited to have Jenny Jackson on Write Off today. Not only is her forthcoming novel Pineapple Street one of the best books I've read in the last year, you'll hear me rave about it in the interview, But Jenny is also a vice president and executive editor at Knopf, so she knows all about publishing from the other side of things too. She has an incredible list of authors from Emily St. John Mandel to Cormac McCarthy, Helen Fielding, Dolly Alderton, Catherine Heine, who we've had on this podcast before. And indeed, Jenny says that after 20 years in publishing, writing has taught her to be a better editor. Finally, she says she understands why it is that authors can be reluctant to revise. Jenny actually wrote another novel right before Pineapple Street during the pandemic that she wasn't able to publish. And as you could hear in that intro clip, the experience left her heartbroken. So she decided to jump straight back in and write something else. I'm so grateful to Jenny for sharing that experience here and also for her advice on fulfilling and subverting reader expectations, rejecting authors she's already worked with and what it felt like to have friends in publishing pass on Pineapple Street. I should add, Pineapple Street isn't out in the UK until the 13th of April, but I really, really recommend that you do pre-order it. It really is that good. And I will re-release this episode coming up to publication. Here's my chat with Jenny. So I usually start with asking people how they got into writing, but I want to ask you, Jenny, how you first got into publishing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I was 22 and I knew that I wanted to work I wanted to get paid to read. 
Um, and that had sort of been like the problem of my whole working life is that all I really wanted to do was read and very few people were offering to pay me to read. And so I had this awful job in college where I worked at, um, I worked as a receptionist at a biotech firm that manufactured spectrometers. And if you ask me what a spectrometer <laughs> is, I definitely couldn't tell you, but I sat at this desk all day and there really wasn't very much work to do at all. And I was really just supposed to be in reception, but I think we probably had three people come in a day. I mean, it was the most boring job. And the person before me had somehow gotten in trouble for doing something on the internet. So they had taken the internet off of my computer. So I was really just sitting there all day with nothing. And so I just brought in books and then all the scientists who were walking by would be like, oh, what are you reading? So I started talking books all day long with the scientists walking by until my manager got peeved about it and said, I really don't want you reading at your desk. It's too distracting for everyone. And so I, of course, kept reading at my desk, but I would just hold the book low so that people couldn't see what I was reading. And so I spent that summer just reading a novel a day. And so I knew I really wanted to get I wanted a job where people wouldn't tell me to not read at my desk. Um, and so I applied to the Columbia Publishing course, which used to be the Radcliffe Publishing course. And it's a big entry point for people to get into publishing who don't know anybody in publishing. And I didn't know a soul in publishing. I knew one person who lived in New York. And so I set off. I moved to New York. I had um, I had one friend. Where from? Where had you from, grown up? Uh, from Boston. So nothing too crazy. Um but I moved on my 23rd birthday to New York. Um, and I was so lucky in that I got a job two weeks after the course. I was hired as an editorial assistant at Vintage, um, assisting two editors, one who edited a lot of science fiction and science and books that were kind of outside my wheelhouse, but I was just thrilled to be there. And another editor who really edited my kind of books. And Vintage was, um, and still is the paperback arm of Knopf, but at the time, a huge part of your job was um, reading for acquiring editors and writing reports for them. So I wasn't hired as an acquisitions editor. I was just hired as a reader, basically. And, um, and then I would help repackage the paperbacks. But it meant that I was just, you know, reading four novels a week and writing reports on them. And so I had my dream job. So I did that for about 10 years. And then um, after 10 years, I became a hardcover editor at Knopf, um, acquiring only my own books. I still think though, that reading for other people is one of the best sort of schools in publishing, because you get really good at reading outside your wheelhouse and outside your taste, and you get good at evaluating you know, the, the market for things that aren't necessarily your thing. So it's, it's a great way to learn to be a publisher. Mm. And and what is your taste, Jenny? Well, I'm, I only work on fiction and I tend to work on sort of a blend of commercial fiction and literary fiction. So on the sort of commercial end of the spectrum, I've published um, the Crazy Rich Asians books and I've published I worked on the Helen Fielding's past couple of books, the Bridget Jones books. And then on the literary end of things, I publish Emily St. John Mandel. I publish Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And then in the middle, I publish sort of funny fiction like Jennifer Close and Catherine Heine and books that make you laugh and think. It's, I mean, it's an amazing list and it's also quite an eclectic list as well, which is partly why I asked about taste because yours seems very 
broad, um, which makes it sound like an incredibly fun job. Am I right in thinking also Cormac McCarthy? Yes, also Cormac McCarthy. Also this guy, Peter Heller, who wrote The Dog Stars. So Mm -hmm. it's like a blend of, you know, authors who write about fly fishing and then authors who (laughs) write about um, Gucci bags. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, is there stuff when you're editing these authors? Because obviously the thematic and structural concerns must be so different across this spectrum. Is there stuff that you notice comes up again and again when you're editing? I don't know whether that whether that yeah. exists or whether it changes the longer an author has been publishing for, but I'm, I'm interested to know whether there are recurrent things, issues that you that you find you deal with. I mean, I think the 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 issue almost everybody deals with is that um, they in, in first drafts they run out of steam somewhere three quarters through, and the end is is usually in need of work. It's I mean, I feel like that's the most common thing because writers start out hot and then they get so eager to get to the end that they're just like, but then this happened by, you know? And so a big <laughs> part of my job, I would say on almost every book is trying to, is trying to whip that part of it into shape. But it's interesting because I think that the best kind of editors need to be sort of universal blood donors and you need to be able to meet a writer wherever they are and give them what they need on their terms. And that applies both in terms of how they like to be edited and what kind of um, what kind of book you help shape it into. I think in terms of how they like it edited, I have writers who send me their books 30 pages at a time all the way until they're done. And then I have other writers who don't show it to me until it's really polished. And either of the, you know, I'll, I work however somebody needs me to work. Um, but then also, you know, it's funny sometimes when, for example, this guy, Peter Heller, his last um, two books ago, he wrote this book called The River. And he does this thing in it where he just moves back and forth between two characters' perspectives without any maybe even paragraph breaks. You can be inside two different heads inside one scene. And when I was first reading it, I was like, "Mm, I don't think you're allowed to do this. Mm, I feel like there's a rule (laughs) in books. I I think this is against the rules. And then I got to the end and I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, I love being in both of their heads and it's crucial to the story that we're in both of their heads. And if we rip it apart and structure it so your chapter A, B, A, B, we're totally going to mess up the rhythm of the book. So, okay, Peter, you're allowed to do this, you know? And so I think sometimes it's just about saying, I'm going to, I'm going to operate within the rules that you have created in this book. And as long as we can stick to those rules, then we'll make it work. I think that's so interesting and also plays into something else I was going to ask you about, which is, I mean, how important is it to fulfill both readers and editorial expectations because you know certainly as a as an aspiring writer myself I you know there are a lot of books out there which will give you thematic and structural guidance they will give you plot beats to fulfill and that sort of thing um, which I guess are useful and there are expectations that you usually have to fulfill but I'm interested in how we subvert those expectations without disappointing people and I ask that in part because I think in your book, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, I think um, you don't necessarily always stick to obvious beats. And I like that very much about it. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more free flowing. And yeah, I mean, how 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 do we sort of pay attention to these concerns, which presumably as an editor are often forefront in some way while yeah. also not making them paramount? It's funny. We um, 
we did this event for Double Day's 125th anniversary and Kevin Kwan was joking on stage about the way that I edited him writing Crazy Rich Asians. And he said that at one point I told him, and I actually now I remember telling him this and I'm like mortified, but I said to him, Kevin, the male lead in a romantic comedy cannot have three ex-girlfriends. The reader will not forgive him for that. Two ex-girlfriends maximum. So I made him cut an ex-girlfriend. And, and that's absolutely true. I did do that. And that is because I felt like female readers would, um, they don't want, <laughs> it's what they want in, in a dream, <laughs> in a dream guy. And I felt like with Kevin there, because he's writing romantic comedy and he's so good at romantic comedy. I think that that genre does have rules that you want to abide by. And so, for example, um, he, in the original book, he had um, two big bachelor party scenes and two big bachelorette party scenes, and they were taking up a big chunk of the middle of the book. And so we had to say, you know, it's, it's, it's more important. This book cannot be you know, 150,000 words, we have to slim it down. And so we have to try and squish all of this into just one bachelor party scene and one bachelorette party scene, because it's more important that we get to the grand romantic um, conflict and denouement. And that's definitely about reader expectations. That's definitely mm -hmm. me saying this is these readers have a certain kind of, these readers are looking for X and Y and we need to deliver it. And, you know, the, the length of the book can be part of that, but also, you know, reader, readers want the, the love interests to be together in books like that. So there is definitely some of thinking who is the reader for this book and what do they want and how do we please them? I think that thrillers and mysteries have much um, stricter rules than any other genre and the reader's hold those books to those standards in a way that literary fiction readers do not. And, you know, in all honesty, as an editor, I've, I have had to pass on thrillers that refuse to play by the rules and fulfill expectations. And really, if they had pulled it off perfectly, I would have gone for it. But I think that in, with a thriller or a mystery, if you're going to mess around with expectations, you have to you have to aim for the bullseye and hit it, you know, it, because mm -hmm. um, I read this really interesting deconstructed mystery I had in on submission. And if at the end you are, you don't get a proper who did it, who killed the, you know, whatever it is too frustrating as a reader. And I think that like, that's actually all the best e editors should be reading first as a reader, you know, and then put on your editorial hat and think about how you can publish it and what you can do to make it better. But for me, thrillers and mysteries, you have to play by those rules. With literary fiction, there's just so much more freedom to play and subvert expectations. And, you know, um, I worked with Emily St. John Mandel on, on her past three novels. And the third one, more than any of them, is structurally extremely playful and wonderfully weird and challenging. And as a reader, like when I read it the first time before knowing, you know, I get it without even since I've published her for so long and it's an option novel, I don't even get a letter from the agent saying, this is what the book is about. I'm just reading it blind. And the book <laughs> is so um, tricky that I was reading it, holding my breath, thinking, okay, Emily, 
you got to pull this off. Oh my God. I don't know if I'm smart (laughs) enough to get this. Oh my gosh. Should I be right? Should I be taking notes? I'm not. And then I got to the end and thank God she really pulled it together. But you know, I was like (laughs) really scared that she wasn't going to pull it together. And I've heard that time and again from readers of the book that as they read, they were nervous. Am I gonna? And then she really, I mean, she pulls it together in a way where you don't have to have been taking notes the whole time. But 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 tranquility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, tranquility. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, um, she had always wanted to copy the, um, the structure of David Mitchell's cloud Atlas. That was something that she had wanted to do actually with the glass hotel. But when she finished the first draft, it was clear that that structure just didn't suit the story. And so she had to reconceive of the structure, but Mm -hmm. she sat down purposefully saying with her, with her third book, with um, Sea of Tranquility, that's the structure I'm going to follow and pulled it off. And of course, she's a very accomplished, seasoned writer. So she's had a lot of practice messing around with these structures. But do you think writers like that, some of the writers you edit, do they still experience self-doubt and kind of sometimes when we talk about rejection on this podcast, we talk about like self-rejection and all that sort of stuff. Do you think that these writers still experience that when they're going through their processes and these? Absolutely. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that when Emily turned that book into me, she was sort of like, does the center hold? You know, like I think that even somebody as brilliant as she is, hands, hands, she called it, hey, here's an admittedly weird book. That's what, that's what she said when I first <laughs> read it. And I think, you know, she knew there was something there, but I think, um, yeah, I think even, even somebody at her level when they've ta- done something really daring says, I've taken this jump intellectually. It works for me. Does it work for you? Yeah. As an editor, how do you handle doling out rejection? And what are the most common things you reject a submission on the basis of? Yeah, I still hate rejecting people. I still, I'm never going to, I'm never going to become callous enough to feel like I'm not ruining somebody's day or week or month or beyond when I, when I send a rejection, obviously the hardest kind of rejection are the writers who I've worked with in the past. I mean, it's brutal. It's heartbreaking because we've started out this journey together. And, you know, sometimes it just happens that they write a book that they feel really passionately about that I just can't get behind, you know? I mean, I'll I'll speak about somebody without using names. I have a writer who I published two novels by, and I think she's so enormously talented. And she wrote a third novel for me that was so unbelievably bleak and dark. And um, and you published Cormac McCarthy. And I published Cormac McCarthy. (laughs) And there there was just no redemption in this book. And so we went back and forth once. And I said, you know, I I don't think I don't think readers, especially right now, can go to a place this dark, this brutal, this full of you know abuse and not have some silver lining or redemption at the end. And she's like, well, that's life, you know, and I feel like I need to honor my art here and tell this story. And I respect that so very much, but unfortunately I, I don't run Jenny Jackson books. I'm not playing with my own money. It's not up to me to publish things that I find interesting that I can't see an audience for. And so Mm -hmm. I found myself in this terrible position of saying like, if you want to rework it, 
to a place where I feel like I can sell it, then please, please work with me. But I deeply understand that it is your book and your name on it and your artistic project. And so if you need to take this to someone else, then I hope we can meet again down the road. And we still have a very warm relationship and we write each other emails and we're still friends, but we're not working together. Wow. Did it get published by somewhere else, that book? Not yet, but I hope it does. Wow. It's an, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, is there anyone you've ever regretted turning down? Oh my God, yes. So, so very, <laughs> very, very many. I just have to say for the benefit of listeners that Jenny's face just crumpled into a look of despair. <laughs> God, I mean, and the thing is, as a good corporate employee, the ones that I should regret the most should be the ones that were the best sellers and of course I've passed on bestsellers and that feels so terrible. And then also one thing that I've done that I think every good editor has done is I have passed on a not so great first novel by a writer who later went on to become really great. And that one, you know, it's fair, but it still makes me feel disgruntled with myself that I didn't spot the germ of what would become great. But on the other hand, one thing we always say in publishing is it has to be on the page, you know? And so the book wasn't there and I didn't feel, I didn't have the vision for seeing how that author was going to develop into who they became. Um, I certainly have, have on other occasions bought somebody's imperfect first novel, helped them make it better and seen a career grow. And that's a really wonderful feeling, but I've gotten that wrong many times. And that feels pretty bad. Um, There's this novel that, Uh, It wasn't even a huge seller, but it was called Shine, Shine, Shine. And I passed on it because I thought it was too strange for the market. It was about um, this woman who um, is grappling with her marriage and her husband becomes an astronaut and goes off to space. And meanwhile, she has alopecia and doesn't have hair and has been wearing a wig. And while he's in space, simultaneously is writing him these missives about their relationship and pulls off her wig and decides to just be herself. And I read it and I loved it and I didn't really see a market for it. And my readers in house didn't really see a market for it. And so we passed and it's not that I regret past. And this was 15 years ago. And it's not Mm. that I regret passing on it because it became a blockbuster though. It did get published and published nicely. I regret it because I actually genuinely loved that book and Mm. I should have fought harder to do it. That's interesting. I guess, yeah, it's always so interesting to me when I see um, publishers and their teams on Twitter getting so excited about um, the books they're publishing. Like if there's such a sense of joy at being involved in a project that you love, isn't there? Yes. Yes, there is. When you genuinely love it, it feels, I mean, you feel a sense of ownership for sure. I feel a sense of ownership over every single book that I've edited and published. I also feel a sense of ownership over books that I had very little to do with just because I read and loved them early, you know, and I think you can probably (laughs) relate to that too, right? Like before we started recording, I was telling Jenny about my early love of Meg Mason, slightly before she became a, a wee bit better known. And that I always feel a slight sort of like pinprick of like, yes, ownership um, when other people say how much they love her as if I've sort of seen it early and therefore it's mine, which is a bit strange, but. <laughs> but I feel the same exact way. I I don't even work for her publisher 
but I read um, a hardcover when it was one week on sale or something. And still, when other people say they like Meg Mason, I pat myself on the back and I'm like, totally called that. Like, I don't know why I feel <laughs> responsible for her success. I had literally nothing to do with it, but because I love it so much when other people love it and they discover it after me, I feel like you are welcome, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, look, let's talk about your book, which is amazing. Your book is Pineapple Street, and I cannot really express enough how much I love it. It's such a clever, funny, zingy book, so readable, so seamless, um, but very insightful at the same time. I'm just going to say a little bit about it before we talk about it. Um, it's about these three family members, two sort of waspy sisters and their sister-in-law living in Brooklyn, New York, and living this mega rich lifestyle. And it's sort of about how they handle their interpersonal relationships, how they handle their wealth, prenups, navigating wealth as a younger generation when they're not sure it's sort of fashionable or morally right anymore. And it's just brilliant. And it has a really, really clear voice, which I think is so interesting for a debut. And it feels, it almost feels kind of disrespectful to call you a debut because you're such an accomplished publisher already, but this is your first published novel that you have written. So yeah, tell us a little bit about how it came about. Sure. So the novel really came about as a recovery novel from uh, from an unpublished novel. And so um, during the pandemic, um, well, I'll start in 2019. So 2019 was just a really difficult, messy, hard year for, um, among sort of my circle and, um, somebody died and there was a lot of grief and a lot oh, of people behaved very badly. Thank you. And, um, and then we all went into COVID and shut down and I was so unresolved. I was really just sort of a mess about things. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't seeing anybody and I was off in the woods in Connecticut, staying with my in-laws, my children. One was on Zoom school. The other was too little to even be on Zoom school. And, um, and I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning every day just because I was so stressed out that I would pop awake and stare at the ceiling. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't just lie here for two hours every morning until I, you know, alone with my thoughts. And so- I started getting out of bed and writing and I wrote a very thinly veiled novel about what had happened. And, um, it made me feel so much better to write it, but weirdly I, um, and I was possessed. I was in love with it. I wrote a first draft in six weeks. It just poured out of me. Wow. I, I mean, couldn't. just on a technical point, <laughs> how did you yeah. do that time-wise? Because, I mean, we were talking earlier, we have the exact same age kids. So now I know exactly how hard that first lockdown was. You know, it was incredibly chaotic and busy if you have kids that yeah. small. Um, yeah. How did you find that time to write a first draft in six weeks? I um, So from 4.30 until 7 or so, I would just be by myself writing, caffeinating, writing, in the, caffeinating. In the morning? In the morning. Wow. And then um, when my kids would wake up, I would throw them each a granola bar and turn on cartoons and then ignore them. Um, <laughs> and then sometime around nine, I would be like, oh my God, their teeth and their brains are totally rotten. <laughs> I have to, <laughs> I have to feed them some real food and get them away from the television. Um, and so we would, we would have a little bit of, you know, normal time. And then later in the day, I would usually go for a run. And running for me has always been a great way for me to 
to think about books. And so on my run every day, I would think about what I had written. I would think about what was going to happen next. I would sort of figure out, you know, characters, motivations, what the scenes would be. And then usually when I would come back from my run, I would sit down and immediately just have to write some things down. It would be, you know, me sitting there in my sweaty gym clothes, making some quick notes. Cause you know, I had to get back to my day job, but I just had to sort of do a download after running. And then um, I would do my, my real job for the rest of the day. And then when everyone would log out at, you know, five 30 or six, I would put my children in a bathtub and I would pour myself a glass of wine. And then I would sit with my laptop on the closed toilet lid and just write while my kids turned into prunes. I mean, they were so clean and they'd be like, mom, the (laughs) bath is cold. And I'd be like, you're fine. (laughs) And that's, that's what I did for six weeks. It was just, I was obsessed. And, um, hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And then the weirdest, the weirdest thing of all is that I wrote it for myself and I wrote it knowing it was not something that I could ever publish because it was so personal and it was just so, um, it wasn't right to share with people because it was so revealing of <clears throat> other people, but I loved it so much and I felt desperate to publish it. And it was crazy because I had never understood it, it, you would think after 20 years as an editor, I would understand why authors publish. Guess what? I had it wrong the whole time. Mm-hmm. I think I felt like authors published to have a career. They published to get paid. They published to be famous. They they published to be a writer. But that's that wasn't my experience at all. My experience was that um, having people read it was an integral part of having written it. And that until people read it, the book wasn't finished. It felt, it felt like I really had to pee and wasn't near a bathroom. It was like killing me that I couldn't, (laughs) that I couldn't share it, you know? And so, so I lost my mind and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I just will share it and I'll just blow up my whole life and that'll be okay. And I was fine with that. And so I started showing it to people I was close to and they said, you're an idiot. Like it's really good, but you will blow up your life. You can't do this. And it was so hard to hear and they were right, but it was really, really, really hard to hear that. And I, I was grief stricken. I felt like I had made the thing I was most proud of in the world and nobody, I couldn't do anything about it. And I was so, I cried so much. I was so sad about it. And I just had like long, torturous phone conversations with 
three or four people who read it and who talked to me about it, who I'm so grateful for. And then one of my very, very best friends, um, his name is Todd Dowdy, and he has a book um, called Pieces of Happiness that is just so wonderful. And um, Todd talked me through it. And together we were like, you know what? F it. I need to write something else because now I know I can write a book. And I'm just going to write something else. And I'm not going to talk to anybody and tell anybody I'm doing it. I'm just going to write this book because now I know I can do it. And so I sat down to write Pineapple Street because I knew how to write a novel and because I was so desperate to relieve myself of this psychic download that I had done. And so Pineapple Street for me was a novel where I knew Nobody in my life was going to get mad at me about it. It wasn't about anybody I knew. It was all made up people. And so I just let it rip. And Pineapple Street took longer than the first book did. Um, but at the same time, it, there was, I was still like on that weird creative white heat. And um, and even though like lockdown semi-ended and we came back to New York. and um, And so I was writing it not from, not from total lockdown. My kids were back in school. Um, but I still wasn't going into the office, which gave me that extra commuting time. It gave me whatever time I normally would have spent brushing my hair, you know, so I just had more time in the day. And so I was able to write pineapple street during that weird year of in between not lockdown, but not fully back at work. So that was, that was 2020. Was that 2020? Was that still the same year that you'd written this previous novel? I think that I started it in the year that I had written the previous novel. Right. So I started it in earnest, probably Thanksgiving of 2020 and finished uh, in 2021. Okay. Wow. I mean, that's still quite quick. And yeah, I, I know that from seeing you talk about it previously that you did do a fair amount of research into things like aviation because uh, there's a character who's yes. in aviation finance and trust um, and estate laws Brooklyn history <laughs> yes I should say because I haven't actually mentioned this yet a lot of it is based about around sort of real estate there's a there's a house in the book that's almost like a character in its own right and and yes all the all the real estate that that these sort of waspy families own um and party in and you did a lot of research into that too didn't you and did yes. that take a long time how did you juggle the research and the writing i don't think you the did research, them simultaneously yeah the research part um some of it grew out of natural obsessions of mine so there was so that was sort of easy because i was al- already knew where to look you know um like the real estate thing basically my husband and I had been renting for, uh, I don't know, 17 years. And, um, we both had this street easy app on our phone that had, you know, different real estate settings. And we were, we pretty much spent, we looked at real estate like every single day always. And then I knew I wanted to, we knew we wanted to always live in Brooklyn Heights. So I had a lot of sort of general knowledge about that, but I wanted to learn a lot more about, um, the Jehovah's Witness properties. And so that was something that I spent a lot of time reading up on online. I think that I sort of research as I go. So um, it wasn't like I wrote a messy draft and then put in the, you know, the the um, Jehovah's Witness stuff later. It was, I was thinking, oh gosh, yeah, he would, they would definitely have bought up a lot of those properties because I knew just from living in Brooklyn Heights, I knew that the Jehovah's had sold all of their property in Brooklyn Heights. And I knew 
they had gone for big money because there's some great blogs in Brooklyn that cover these real estate transactions that I read out of interest. And so, um, so I really, I knew that they were going to buy those properties. And so it was just a matter of then going on and sort of investigating which properties sold and how that worked. And then I learned about the secret passageways that run underneath Brooklyn that used to connect the different Jehovah's Witness properties. So then that became like a funny joke for me to build into the book. The aviation investment banking storyline really comes out of um, a friend of mine who was sort of like a roommate in the early aughts who um, did day trade stocks based uh, stocks in the airline industry and who has worked in the airline industry. Basically, the whole Malcolm's whole career working as an aviation investment banker was built on this friend. And this guy guy's a fascinating guy. He and my husband, uh, before Tori and I were married, they did a round the world trip where they booked one flight and then they started calling back and changing their layovers, changing their layovers. And they figured out some sort of um, loopholes in the American Airlines system where if you had a layover of less than 24 hours, it just counted as a layover. So you weren't paying for an extra leg. And so they called back every day and got a different customer service rep every day. And they built in 20 stops and they traveled around the world on one ticket, never staying anywhere for more than a day. So they slept on airplanes. They were sometimes in hotels. They went to like Thailand and Russia and South America. I mean, they went all over on the super cheap on one flight. So anyway, that, that's kind of, um, that's kind of his, his jam is like weird airline travel expertise. And so I had him read an early draft of it and he helped me fix so much of it because, you know, there were, and then also he gave me sort of, um, some great inside scoop on like, well, actually West Virginia has this amazing place where you can land uh, your small plane and you can go to this great restaurant. So I, I built in a ton of stuff thanks to him. And then I have two friends who practice trust in estate laws. So they both read and gave me advice on that part. But what is so funny is that you take, anybody listening to this who hadn't read the book would be like aviation finance, trust law. <laughs> I'm not going to read this book, <laughs> but I just want to emphasize that this, I mean, this voice that you have in the book, I mean, you have three points of view from your, these three, well, two sisters and a sister-in-law, but it's, it's such a breezy voice. It's a really, really readable book. You know, it's very, very light voice with this a kind of occasional sardonic sort of side as well. And how do you assimilate all this? I mean, actually quite heavy stuff, real estate, law, like finance. And yeah, how did you find this voice? Because I think it feels it feels like a like a voice that we're going to see again, that you'll use again in your next book. It's such a kind of clear, likable, unique voice. Yeah. Did it take you a while to find it? Well, I think it's the same voice as in my novel in the box. Um, so I think it's a, I think it's a voice that I just feel very comfortable in. Um, when I think about my favorite authors to read, I think about people like Kevin Kwan, Lori Colwin, Jennifer Close, Catherine Heine, Helen Fielding. I love writers who, um, who write in that sort of breezy style and who, uh, I love a strong voice that just kind of zips you along. One thing that Kevin taught me is Kevin Kwan had a post-it note over his desk while he was writing that just had the word joy on it. And that was a reminder to him that he wanted people to feel joyful while they were reading. And so I did the same. And every single scene, I thought 
how do I make reading this scene joyful? And yeah, there are scenes where I, 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 not that I hope a reader cries, but there's some, you know, there are some scenes where our characters are heartbroken, but even within those, I wanted, I wanted to use a light touch because I just, my goal really writing this book was to write a piece of entertainment. And and it is so entertaining, as well as insightful, as I said before. So you wrote it in, how many drafts do you think you did, by the way? I think that I did one, two, three. I did four or five drafts. Okay. So Over one, what, like a year and a bit or something. Exactly. And, you know, I really only wrote, uh, so I wrote my first draft and then I showed the first draft to my mom uh, to my work wife, Lexi Bloom, who is also an editor at Knopf. She's a cookbook editor and a wonderful reader. And, and to my agent, uh, Brittany Bloom. And so I got notes from them. Oh, and my author, Lauren Fox. So how weird is that is that I gave a draft of my book to one of my writers, but Lauren and I are such close friends. And even though it sounds super inappropriate, somehow it was fine. Um, and so <laughs> I took their notes and I redid the draft and then that was the draft that Brittany submitted to editors. And then my editors did, I think, two real rounds and then one last like check to make sure I didn't mess up anything. Okay. And how come you already had an agent at this point? Because I had talked to Brittany about the first book. Ah, okay. Yeah. And Brittany and I are close, you know, Brittany and I have worked together for 20 years as editor and agent and I public we share so Jay Courtney Sullivan is a client of hers and an author of mine Helen Ellis is a client of hers and an author of mine mm-hmm. um Selma Blair so we share we work together on a lot of different books so um we were already so close I mean she was at my wedding she we're so close that it just felt natural how nervous were you to take either book out onto dry land but particularly this second one Pineapple Street given that you're obviously you know, you had written almost with a vengeance, like this is going to get out there. Yeah. How did you feel taking it out there? This is going to sound crazy, but I felt, um, un- I just, I didn't even second guess it for a second. I wanted it out there and I wanted it out big. And, you know, Brittany is aware that it was sort of, um, that I was opening myself up in a way that is, I mean, one thing people have said to me a couple of times, which I feel like ridiculous repeating is people are like, it is so brave for you to write this. And that like horrifies me because that's basically like, I feel like that's what you say to a pregnant lady wearing a bikini. It's like, you are brave, you know, like <laughs> I feel like, oh, I'm super exposed, you know? And I, so I like hate when people say that because I feel <laughs> like cringes, but, um, but, I, but what they really mean is like my whole professional world can see up close whether or not I can write a good book or not. You know, it's not like somebody who has a whole different job and life or their friends will just think you published a book. That's great. And even if it sells two copies, they'll be like, that's awesome. You published a book. Whereas I think I am going into this with a certain amount of expectation. And so Brittany very sensibly said, if you want to, we can do an exclusive submission and we can just show it to one editor and they can, you know, that way you're not as exposed if it gets rejected. And I said, you know what? People are going to like it or not like it, but I, the way, but because of where I was emotionally coming from, I just needed to know. And so I said, send it out to 20 people, go wide. And there are people who it's not for, and they'll pass on it. And there were people who it was not for and who passed on it, but there are people who it was for and who went for it. And so I'm so glad that we did it that way, but it was pretty weird. And it was 
I just want to make sure I get this right. It was preempted for seven figures, right? Yes. Yes. Um, How did it feel when that came through? Oh, I definitely cried and called my mom. Um, It felt, you know, what was so funny is that I had this really awesome, lucky situation where there were, there were a lot of editors who were interested. And so we started setting up phone calls and I have been on the editor side of this a million times where I'm having conversations with writers um, saying, you know, I'm interested in your book. Would you consider changing this? Would you consider changing that? And after having been on the author side of it, I will never go into that conversation the same way because I, as a writer, I felt more sensitive than I would have expected. And like, if they weren't really telling me that they liked it a lot, they were just telling me what they would change. I had a hard time wanting to be published by them. I was like, but you don't really think it's that great. I want to be with somebody who really likes it, you know? And so I had done half of the conversations and I was finding them for all my bravado two minutes ago, but I was like, just send it out. These conversations (laughs) were super tough. I felt, um, and the rejections were a little bit tough too. You know, they were the people who passed on it, especially if they're people who I know and like felt weird. Um, yes, that must've been so weird. Totally. You know, the ones that I feel like there, there are friends of mine who passed on it and then later called me or wrote me and said, it wasn't for my list, but congrats. And that felt great. And I was able to just walk away from that. I think that people who I know and like who read it and passed on it, and we haven't had the chance to talk about it yet. I'm a little more awkward about because I don't feel like I can write them and be like, Hey, I know you passed my book, but I just want to let you know, it's all good. Like, that'd be a really weird thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's good to hear from somebody really in the know that those, you know, it wasn't right for my list passes are real and that they happen even amongst friends. That I think that is reassuring to people because there are a lot of those passes and, you know, they, I've had those sort of passes on my first novel, which didn't sell. And those sorts of passes, when I, whenever I sort of revisit them, sometimes I feel really, not that I do that a lot now, but you know, at the time, and sometimes I would look at them and think, this feels really good. It's just not right for their list. That's fine. And then other times I would look at it and be like, what a load of BS. This is just so upsetting. And my reaction would change entirely, even though the words in the email were exactly the same. Yes. I think it is. I think it is so real because, you know, there are publishers who have taken a job working at an imprint and the imprint has a very strong mandate, a very strong readership. They have their list and their list. Sometimes they might even have sort of a mantra for the list. And that mantra might not perfectly align with that editor's taste, but their job isn't to publish. You know, like I was saying before, I don't work at Jenny Jackson books. I work at Knopf. I can't publish everything that I love. Even that book about, you know, the woman with the astronaut husband and alopecia. you sometimes just have to publish what's right for the list. So I think those rejections are absolutely honest and valid. And and I felt, I do feel that some of the people who passed on Pineapple Street, either they just weren't looking for someone writing about rich people, or they weren't looking for comic fiction, or they were looking for something more literary. You know, that's all real and that's all fine. And it doesn't mean that the editor didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to publish it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I should say now that the the book has obviously it's been bought around the world. It's been made quite a fuss of, and it's also being made into an HBO show. So, it, um, it's, so it's the streamer is t- is still TBD, but um, Picture Start is the production company on it, and they have a star attached, and so they are their work. They're 
going out to streamers this this month. That is so exciting. It's fun. Yeah. It must be so strange to see the characters you've written, especially because these characters are very, these are the types of characters where I imagine everyone who's read the book really feels like they know what they look like and they know who they are. And, you know, it must be very strange for you to have those suddenly cast. Uh, One thing that I had to do with the TV show is realize that the way that a television show is pitched is really different from the way that a book is pitched. And I'm not a writer on the show and um, they've been really awesome about including me and showing me stuff. And I've had, you know, Zooms with the showrunner and writer and she's shown me their pitch and it's different than how I would do it. And I, but I haven't given a single note because she, the reason that I went with them is because they're professionals and I just have to trust that they know what they're doing and I like it. It's just different, you know, and then they, they changed some things like they moved one of the characters, Mullen, who is like, who lives up in Rhode Island in the book. And she's a love and he's just a love interest from the past. They've moved him to Brooklyn to make him part of the ongoing story. So that's like a huh. huge change or you know, a painting goes missing from Pineapple Street early on in the first episode. And there's not a, there, that's not a storyline at all in the book. Um, so that's been interesting. I'll say in terms of other, of, of thinking about the characters in other people's hands, the most mind blowing and wonderful thing for me happened two weeks, or maybe it was just the week. It was right before break, the week right before break. And one of the crazy perks about working at Penguin Random House when my book is being published by a different division of Penguin Random House is that the audio book was being recorded in my office building on the second floor. And so I, they invited me to come down and listen to them recording the audio book. And it was so cool. She was doing the different voices. She was doing the kids voices. She was doing Malcolm's voice. And I literally like tears were flowing down my face (laughs) hearing an actress reading these characters. It made them real in a totally wild way. Yeah, how fun. If this book hadn't made it, given that you, you know, you talked about this white heat and this huge desire, not just to write suddenly, but also to be published, what would you have done if Pineapple Street hadn't been bought? God, I would have had a really hard time picking myself up off the floor. I wish, I I would love to say that I would have just buckled back down and done it again. But to be honest, I don't know if I could have. And I, that's, I'm, I, I'm sure that's like not a super inspirational thing to say, but I, um... no, I think it is actually sometimes an inspirational thing to say, because I think people have different reactions. And sometimes I think people really need to hear that things really hurt. I think, I think people do need to hear that sometimes. Well, I do. I felt, <laughs> I felt so banged up emotionally from the first book. And I felt like I gave everything I could to Pineapple Street. And I wrote, I really wrote the best book that I was able to write. I, it's, for who I am right now and where I am right now and what my brain is capable of, Pineapple Street is the best book that I can write. And so if nobody wanted it, then I would have, I think I would have put my tail between my legs and just gone back to my day job. And who knows? The problem is, is that I discovered that writing can actually be really fun. Like, like you know, when you have an idea for a scene and it's flowing and you're making yourself laugh and Then I get this thing where after I've written a scene that I love, I want to call someone up and read it to them. And I don't do that because honestly, I have great friends, but who wants somebody to do that? Nobody. So I don't do that. But that's how I know I have something special is when I want to read it to someone. And that feeling is so good that I'm probably still just going to keep chasing it and chasing it. So I hope I would have come back to chase that feeling, but it would have, I would have had to lick my wounds for quite some time. Would your younger self be surprised at where you are now? Did did you want to be a writer when you were much younger? My 
high school self would be over the moon. My college self would be over the moon. I think that when I became an editor, I put my dreams of being a writer in a drawer. Um, and I somehow convinced myself that I couldn't do both things at once and that that was okay because I loved my job and I love my job. I love being an editor. I feel like I belong to the coolest book club on the planet. But 10 years ago, if you had told me this, I wouldn't have believed you. Has becoming a writer changed you as an editor? Yes, deeply. It ha- I wish that I had been able to do it sooner because it's made me a much better editor. I think that I understand structure in a very different way. I understand that um, when I t- <laughs> sometimes I used to do this thing where I would say to an author, you know, I'm not sure this scene works from his perspective. Can you rewrite it from her perspective? And if it doesn't work, we'll just toss it and go back. Oh my God. That's like a crazy <laughs> thing to ask a writer. I can't believe I used to say that BS to people. And I will never, I mean, if I do need to ask someone to try something out, I will try it understanding that that is like an emotionally laborious thing for them to do. And that throwing out work is really, really hard. And I get it. And when, you know, my editors killed some jokes because they didn't think they were funny. I was like, pretended I was cool about it, but it felt terrible. And I like still contend they're funny. They just don't get it. But uh, so I'm like a much more empathetic person now. And then also I used to have this really misguided notion that when an author was reluctant to do revisions, I think some secret part of me thought it was like laziness. Like when they, you know, if the authors that don't like revision, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's fun to write, not fun to revise, but like, it's your job, do it. And I think now I understand that actually revision can feel really, really difficult because when you're, I describe it as like being in the river, like when you're writing, you are in the river and you're swimming along with the stream and it's like pulling you along. And then you get out of the river and you give it to somebody else to read and they ask you to do something. And it's really hard to find your way back to the river and revision demands that you get back in there. And, um, but I now understand in a very different way that sometimes you can't. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others, and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks, and see you next time. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.